Hey folks, today's episode is brought to you by Smirnoff Number no. 21 Vodka Ornaments, the perfect white elephant gift. If you go to one of those gift swaps this year, now you don't have to wonder what to get. Uh, you know, finding the right gift can be tough, can be expensive, but Smirnoff brings you a fun and affordable option. Give people what they actually want for the holidays this year, provided they are adults, and that is vodka. It's a two-in-one option. You get decorations, you get vodka in the same gift. So give the best gift this holiday. Holiday season, Smirnoff number no. 21 vodka ornaments. As always, please sip responsibly and only share with people 21 and up. Receiving this message. We are Ken Jennings and John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is The Omnibus. You have accessed entry 1323.JG0119, certificate number 16197, the Toyota Hilux. Can you list every car you've ever owned? Yeah, but I just haven't owned very many. Well, let's hear them. Uh, First car. Dodge Neon. Uh Uh-huh. Because I'm younger All than right. you. That keep, that's I, I, didn't, I also didn't own a car until college. Oh, okay. Dodge uh, me on. Let me see. Then when my wife got married, we, me and my wife got married, she had an old Corolla. I guess I was never on the deed. Does right. that count? Well, it's a Toyota. Yeah. Yeah. And then I drove a used Toyota for a I was still, I was driving a Toyota when I was on TV and I kept it for like about 10 years. This like old Corolla. Just Another kinda, Corolla. As a marker of my... Man every of the man, people, every man status. unchanged by my new status. Sure. Classic preppy move. Mindy was driving a Saturn then, then a Subaru Outback, hmm. then a Honda Odyssey minivan, mm-hmm. then an electric car, a Chevy Volt, which I still drive today. It's very quiet and I can run over people and they never hear me coming. Boy, you are, you, your, your car choices. I have a good really, time, as you can tell. Really confirm yeah, what is your the, rep. What is the Mustang of that list? <laughs> as the, a party the Saturn? Animal. Yeah, it must be the Volt, I think. Maybe is the, the Outback. Hottest car. <laughs> my lesbian car is my, is my coolest car. Did the Outback have a, uh, uh, wag more, bark less sticker on the back window. <laughs> I think they come with that now. Yeah, they do. It like, comes with from the factory. The Japanese don't understand what it means. But they're like, Ah, wag more, <laughs> bark less. <laughs> well, um, you 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 like a Japanese car? It sounds like you you feel like they are well made. If you're and- my age, like. You got it drilled into you, like just get a Toyota or a Nissan. They last forever. Don't yeah. don't get an American car. Right. Don't get fancy. Don't try and just, get a thing. Maybe things will go your way. You can get a Honda. 
But if you subscribe, that's, the, that's to, your aspirational car. If you can subscribe to Consumer Reports, you know you're gonna you're you're gonna right. get the top five are gonna be Honda. And I was never from some part of the country where there was even a dynamic of you didn't buy an American car. I knew nobody on an overpass was gonna be yelling at me, which is a real thing. That's in a real a lot thing. Of the lot of the country. Mm-hmm. I I remember getting. Uh, um, the major stink eye from people right and left uh, driving an Audi in uh, Rust Belt, mm. going going uh, up the Ohio River. It's uh, like it's like ordering a Pepsi in Atlanta. It was you yeah. just don't do it. You don't do it. What do you want to do? Your rundown of cars? Oh, my rundown of cars is a rogues gallery of garbage. It's a long, long line in a junkyard. Yeah, my first car was a 72 Chrysler Newport Imperial. That's what uh, people would say. Get a Chrysler Newport Imperial. <laughs> 72 was the was the <laughs> best year for them. And then I had a 75 Fiat Spider. Uh those were both uh, not very not very useful Alaskan cars. The 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 Chrysler would spin out as soon as you touch the accelerator. The thing would just you just I could spin Brody's all day. Perfect. And, and then the uh, the Fiat was a convertible. Oh, that's is, what that's what you want in Alaska, like a ragtop. And then also like several of my friends' parents forbade them from riding in it with me because they were like. It's a it's a death trap. It's a suicide rap. Because of you, the driver, or because well, just because you know every other vehicle on the road in Alaska is either a giant truck being driven by a maniac or some kind of Subaru or Volvo. But it just seemed like you're either going to roll it or it's going to get crushed beneath a suburban. It's probably not wrong. After that, I had another '74 uh, Volkswagen bus that caught on fire in Sprague, Washington, and uh, sat and burned for a while until I could put it out with buckets of sand. Then I went without a car for a while. Then uh, I had a Nissan. I did. I had a Nissan 4x4 pickup, King Cab. Where were you living? Where you had it? Was this Alaska? It was Alaska. And then I moved to Seattle, and my sister took possession of my Nissan. And put like 300,000 miles on it because she drove from Fort Collins, Colorado, or Durango, Colorado to Anchorage back and forth like three times a year. Skiing? Skiing and just, you know, pretending to go to college. Uh, every time I see a pickup in the city of Seattle, I wonder why you would own a pickup in the yeah, city what do you of do? But then my next car was a pickup. It was a Ford F-250 that had a Chevy 350 motor crammed into it. Why? Uh, because it was from Alaska and people up there. It was, This was from, um, not from, where was it from? It was from uh, like Delta Junction, Alaska. And up there, when your Ford motor blows up, you just use whatever motor is lying <laughs> whatever around. Is handy. And they were geniuses. They, they you know, because you had to design all these belts to go because the sh- sure i didn't even know this was possible Chevy i'm not motor, a car guy the alternators over here and the ford motor you know the generator yeah. and so forth and so on so there were there were these crazy belts the rube goldberg thing in there it ran and uh, was, was a strong pickup and then my next vehicle was my ford e350 tour van 15 passenger van which i i loved that car and then did that have a long life on the road? It did. We put a lot of miles on it. And then after that, it was it really started to go downhill. If that sounded bad, uh, and I bought that van from Harvey Danger. So they bought it new, and then I got it for a pretty good price. After that, I had a 97 Chrysler LHS and a 89 Audi 5000 Quattro and a 97 Jetta with a VR6 
And then I bought my fantasy car, which was a 1979 three quarter ton Suburban, GMC Suburban. Which you still Which I still own. have, yeah. Uh, not, not a single one of those was a new car or even a, like a, a halfway functional car. I've had multiple cars catch on fire and burn. Um, at some point, I'm a dumbass. At some point, you have to wonder: Is it the cars? If, the, <laughs> if, if, if you have one car light on fire, you're like, "Oh, the universe!" But when it happens the third time, the problem is that you know, if I'm going to be one of these guys, like a junk car guy or a, or a nutty car guy, like have some cool cars. I mean, I guess the Fiat was cool. Mm-hmm. Volkswagen bus was, I guess, cool. But a lot of these cars are just like, what's cool about a Chrysler LHS? Oh, I also had a Chrysler Sebring convertible. I like convertibles. You are like Chrysler's too, apparently. Well, my parents were were uh, Chrysler people. They they're uh, the, all the way back. I guess my mom drove across the country in a '54 Chevy. But after that, they bought Plymouths, and they bought Plymouths all the way through the '60s. And then in '72, we bought a Dodge Dart and drove the Dart. My dad, you know, my dad bought that Imperial, and then. Uh, yeah, I don't know what it was, that loyalty to Plymouth. It's something that goes back to the 60s or 50s even for my parents, and it just got passed down to me. My parents were Ford people, and I wonder if that was from their parents as well. Yeah. I turned into a Ford truck person. I definitely believe in Ford trucks. But, you know, Ford didn't make a 70s Suburban, so I ended up with a GMC. And only one Japanese car on your whole list, the Nissan. <sighs> only one, yeah. There was a my, – my mom at a certain point had a Chevy Nova, but it was really a Toyota – manufactured car it was just branded uh chevy because it was during that period that you're describing where chevy was like we don't even know how to make cars anymore why don't we just <laughs> we give up sell toyotas <laughs> uh and that car, car turned out to be a lemon actually but uh but i have spent a lot of time in toyotas because i'm an american person and at one point i really when i had that nissan 4x4 it was during the the era of the kind of ascendancy of the Toyota SR5 pickup. Mm-hmm. Um, it was just the hottest, coolest truck. You may know it from uh, Michael J. Fox's right. uh, supporting role to the to the star of that movie, which was actually the pickup truck in Back to the Future. Uh, that was a Toyota, like a jacked up SR5 that was super hot and it was emblematic of the 1980s isn't like, the, the delorean the star oh right i guess yeah the delorean probably <laughs> I mean, is, it can't travel through time it's the biggest car it's not in just that the movie. going door but you know it's the hilux that really or the, i'm sorry the sr5 that really stuck with you you had to do the thing where you got rid of the to and the ta so it just said yo yo that was, that's right that was a very big or part toy of- Toy. Oh, I never saw that. Yeah, toy it was would, good. It would be off-centered. At least the yo is centered. It was off-centered, but it, it was true, also a toy. It was. Uh, growing up in the 70s, right, we remember, uh, and probably me more than you, but a time when Japanese cars were seen as really cheapo, small, you know, badly made, and dangerous little economy boxes. Um, when I was a what a kid especially, and the American cars were at their most bloated, gas guzzling, um, like yeah. But how'd that turn out for b- us? Bloat. There's no other word for it. <laughs> uh, the Japanese were were making you know small, efficient cars with small motors, 
And um, did were they not good when they started? No, they were great. I mean, they were okay. manufactured well to a high standard. They just didn't. They were the uh, the opposite of, out what, of style. What America thought was a good car. And the thing is, that European cars also were made always. I mean, a European sports car always had a small displacement motor for the most part. They were just made light and small, so they were fast. And American cars tried to get speed through just pure motor displacement. But, though, but you know, an American car from the 1960s, they are legendarily very fast in a straight line. But as soon as you turn the wheel to do any kind of maneuver, uh, the car just becomes a, a, a beluga whale. Turning a car is more of a European thing. We have That's wide exactly open spaces. Right. You can just go in a straight line to where you're going and if, your Ford will get you there. Yeah, if you think about a 1966 Chevy uh you know Camaro no they didn't make them in 66 if you think of a if you think of a GTO a 1960s mm-hmm. GTO and then you compare it to a Porsche 911 well, it has three times as much metal for yeah it's just gigantic and i mean obviously you can put more people in the GTO and you can drive on the american highways out across the desert probably much more comfortably but boy if you're racing through a canyon uh the the Porsche is going to walk away from you and the, the Japanese cars were, they raced them, they customized them. There are all kinds of uh, uh, very kind of expensive, collectible, early 70s, hot-rodded Toyotas. But we don't think of them, we didn't think of them here as any kind of a speedy car. I mean, I guess the Datsun 280Z or the 240Z, that was the first like uh, American glimpse of like a Japanese sports car. But they were racing all kinds of GTRs and you know little sedans that you, that we would just think of as econo boxes, but in fact they were hot little hatchbacks. The, the uh, Toyota Celica was another one that was you know pretty hot hot rod little car. Oh, yeah, the Celica was sporty. Yeah, I remember all these cars from like seeing them given away on game shows. Yeah, I, I was not a car fan, but I was a game show fan for sure. Well, on the Celica, I had a friend in high school that ran. He worked at at Merrill Field as a, he was a kid that like swabbed down float planes. That was his <laughs> after school job. And and in the winter when the lake was frozen and they were ski planes, I mean, you can't swab them down, but you can, you can keep them clean and gassed up. It's a very Alaska job. And he would put aviation gasoline in his Celica. What does that do? Can you well, do that? Well, it's just a lot higher octane, you know, your, your typical. Do you just have to ga- you just have to fill up every, uh. Well, it's, no, it's not that. You just you, car runs a lot hotter. I mean, no, normal pump gas is ninety one, ninety two octane, and, huh. and aviation gasoline is a hundred or more. And he ran it until the he blew the motor up. I mean, the thing just couldn't. It wasn't meant to have that pure uh, gas. See, this is what I picture happening when you put aviation fuel in a Toyota. Yeah. So that's good. It seems like my uh, my instincts are right on whether or not I should put aviation fuel in my. Corolla. Your instincts also about Alaskan teenage boys is probably correct, <laughs> and this is an example. Ram trucks. Motor Trend's back-to-back truck of the year. We're not bragging about it. We're just being honest. The landscape's changed, and we've changed with it. Stronger. More powerful. Innovative and more luxurious. You think an award like this would give us permission to take a victory lap? Well, you'd be dead wrong. The only thing on our mind is getting better, delivering harder for our customers, 
and pushing the limits of what's possible. Because when you lead from within, you redefine what a truck can do. Ram. Built to serve. Ram is a registered trademark of FCA US LLC. But one of the things that uh, that also came on the scene at the time were those little pickup trucks, the little kind of economy pickup trucks that seemed to mostly be made out of cardboard. They were they were so small relative to a full-sized American truck. And um and they seemed like grocery getters, errand runners, like nothing that would have any sort of oomph. I wasn't clear who the who, you know, who is the prospective buyer for this? You know, if if you just want if you if you want a pickup, you're not gonna get that. You're definitely not and gonna And if you throw, want a small little errands thing, why would you get that? Who I mean, are you? You don't wanna you don't wanna throw a bale of hay in the back. It would tip it over. Could they price them for less than the American pickups? Was that what it was? They were priced for less, but also there is a market that um that I think took American automakers by surprise for a car that gets really good gas mileage that just I mean, what do you? What do most of us need a pickup truck for, if anything? Throw a bicycle in the back. Throw a little bit of lumber. I mean, you can't keep, keep a, you can't put a full sheet of plywood in the back of a Toyota pickup. Uh, Once a year, you're moving yeah. something, and you wish you had a pickup. That's right. Or a friend with a pickup. Or you're running a little, uh, you know, a little business that moves stuff around. I mean, I, uh, for a long time, you would see all the little parts stores that uh, you know, an auto mechanic would call up the local auto parts store and say, Hey, I need a uh, windshield wiper motor or something. And they send a little truck out with the part and bring it to you. <laughs> and, uh, and that's always little Toyota two wheel drive trucks doing that. Just little errands. Delivery you know? stuff. Yeah. Uh, the Toyota, what, what is known as the Toyota Hilux in the rest of the world. And that's H I L U X. I have never heard of this by the way, because it was not marketed as the Hilux in America. It looks like Hillux. Why, Hillux. why is there no hyphen? I'm very, I'm very angry that it just has no hyphen. Well, it's and the 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 other thing is, is it's a complete misnomer. They're not luxurious at all. Oh, the it's Lux is not supposed to be. High, well, it is, but I mean, it's wrong. They're not. They're neither neither high nor luxurious. Maybe low Lux didn't didn't make <laughs> or, it out of marketing. Low cheap or something. <laughs> uh, in 1968, Toyota introduced these little pickup trucks. And they were extreme. They had a little four-cylinder motor, like 1.5-liter motor. They had about 70-plus horsepower. And they were just little runabouts. Um, but, uh, again, they were they were popular in Japan. They, were, they took a while to catch on in America, but they were enormously popular around the globe. And we often think, we forget that the auto market is a global market. We don't. We sell a lot of American cars in America, but we have never sold a ton of like Chrysler Imperials in Africa. Uh, you see, you see most cars in Africa coming from. Well, there are the colonial cars like the Range Rover uh, from Britain or the um, the Peugeot four hundred five or four hundred four, which became kind of the ubiquitous taxi cabs that you would see on the you know, streets of Mombasa or whatever. Uh, but you don't see a ton of 57 Chevys. Um, you did see them in Cuba. But other, so other countries did a better, other Europe and Asia did a better job of cornering 
a lot of the developing world market. They really did. If you if you think about, I mean, the Mercedes Benz, the the classic sort of African Mercedes that has three hundred thousand miles on it and keeps on going. Yeah. Um, if you yeah, they were smart not to buy Chryslers. By the way, like it's, it's really worked out well for them. Now, fifty years later, we can see, and it's just a different standard of build, a different sort of um, uh, a, a different mentality about making a bulletproof car, and and not one because American car design in the fifties and sixties was and seventies was extremely influenced by the rise of the uh, the transcontinental interstate highway system. So you've got these big ribbons of, of flat and banked highway. What kind of car do you want to drive on that? Not some little high revving uh, little zipper. You know, you want a big fat car that you can put your whole family in. It's still fun today to travel somewhere and you rent a car and you you get something with a nameplate you've never seen before. Yeah. And you don't even know, like, is this a chassis that I've ever seen before? Like we were, we took the kids to Costa Rica and rented a little SUV because the road's there are not great, and we, we did a ton of driving. And the SUV we got was the Daihatsu Terios, uh-huh. <laughs> which is a little <laughs> tiny mini SUV with a 1.3-liter yeah. engine or something. And we were having the hardest time. We were like, we asked for all-wheel drive, and this thing is not all-wheel drive. And at some point, I think Dylan like cleaned some dust on the back of the car and saw it says it says AWD above the bumper. And we finally found on the dashboard the place to turn on all-wheel drive. It had a little spot. It had a little it had a little thing you had to turn on for the power of all-wheel drive in this little compact, goofy SUV, but that barely fit us in our stuff. Well, you know, Daihatsu is uh, like an extremely old uh, Japanese manufacturer. I mean, they're one of the oldest uh, engine makers in Japan. It literally seemed fake. It seemed like a yeah. fake... Uh, car company from a movie like this is where the the, the company from Die Hard or something. Well, they're they're owned by Toyota. Now. It, yeah, now yeah. it's a Toyota. Yeah. But the but uh, uh, the companies that that recognized that they were making cars as much for the export market as for anywhere. I mean, if you think of the of Vietnam, um, what the motor vehicles were during the Vietnam War in Vietnam that weren't brought there by the United States. They were all either French cars, Citroëns or Peugeot because of the, the colonies. But then Vespas everywhere, little Italian export scooters and, and because it's perfect for that traffic here system. Right. right? But then uh, the Fiat, like uh, the sort of ubiquitous Fiat 124 um, that became a model that was, almost copied uh, bolt for bolt by all of Eastern Europe. So the Lada and the, the Skoda and the Trabant, they're all, you know, derived from a Fiat design. <laughs> and actually the Japanese early car makers in Japan were also, you know, using Fiat and Italian uh, sedan makers as models. To reverse engineer yeah. how a car is built. Because, you know, they're simple. They're meant to be bulletproof. I mean, Fiat has a bad reputation for reliability that kind of is unearned and came later. But, um, but I mean, there are millions of those cars still on the road. The United States just w- wasn't uh, wasn't thinking that way. It just wasn't in that game. We had a big enough market, yeah. you know? Like, one thing about being a Japanese car company is you need an export market. There's just not that many car buyers in Japan. Like, right. if you can start selling to... If you're going to become an industrial industry. power. Right, right. And manufacturing cars, having a car manufacturing industry is a sign that your nation 
is uh, has arrived as an industrial power. If you think about the countries that make cars, it's really a small list, and it's a list of industrial powerhouses. I mean, Korea started making and exporting cars, and it was really a symbol of Korean um, like uh, ascendance. When I moved to Korea, every car on the road was one of these early Hyundais. It was a pony. It was called the uh-huh. pony. It was never exported. Um, but you know, we, it, it was kind of a joke. It was like, these are the Ladas or the Skodas or whatever. Right. But within five years, they were selling the, what the XL was that their yep. first American car. Like they had figured it out and now it's a major part of the car industry. I mean, even Canada and Mexico, although yeah. they both have car manufacturing industries. Canada just makes American cars basically. And then Japanese cars are, are manufactured in North America. And what's that Indian car company you always see everywhere? Oh, um, Tata. Tata. Yeah. Right. Which is a, which is a, a, again, a kind of, I think a morphing, a gradual morphing of fiat. Is that, is that true? Technologies. Yeah. I, and in fact, I think in Eastern Europe, they at one point just bought a whole fiat factory and shipped it. That would be easier. Uh, and then in Mexico, they're very famous in Central America for, or South America for manufacturing Volkswagens. Yeah. You know, they kept making Beetles until well after they were not made anywhere else. Like every cab in Mexico City was a Volkswagen Beetle well into the 90s. But up th- through, so th- the Toyota Hilux was introduced in 68. Um, they changed their design uh, in 72, and there was a there was a, a section there in the 70s from 72 to 78 where uh, they made a slightly bigger – I mean, they're, they're, these are small two-wheel drive little runabouts. They didn't make much of an impact on the American They're scene. just pickups? Is they're that just right? Little they pickups. don't use the chassis to put anything else on? At the time, okay. no. The Hilux was just a little pickup truck. And um, – and then in 78, they did a redesign. And oh, and at a certain point in the 70s, they completely stopped, Toyota stopped making any attempt to push the Hilux name. And they literally changed the name of the product to Truck. <laughs> so it was just it's like Ikea. A Toyota truck. And if you said Toyota truck, you knew what it was. There was only one. And it was, you know, what What do you drive a Toyota truck? I mean, to a degree, we do that. Um, that's what American manufacturers are doing. I yeah. mean, I mean, no, the, I mean, you say it's a Ford truck. You yeah. don't necessarily say it's the F whatever. You say you say you say F whatever if you're talking to somebody yeah, that's tr- going to care, guy. right? But Otherwise, if, what did you buy? I bought a Ford truck. A Ford I bought a Chevy truck. truck. Right. Like that's that's how it works. Uh, Dodge trucks are Ram tough. Yeah, it's right there in the name. Uh, but it was really in '78, at least for me, where the design of the Hilux became. Cool. It was no longer just a little, uh, a little sort of truck that I don't know who would use. You know, somebody that was throwing a couple bags of potting soil in the back to a truck that had charisma. And they introduced in that era uh, four wheel drive into the trucks. And all of a sudden, there was uh, there was they were filling a niche that wasn't being filled. You know, the, there, there had been small American trucks uh, like the Jeep right. and the original Ford Bronco that were small and agile and meant to kind of bounce around. And Ford abandoned the Bronco, the small one, and made it a full-size thing. Jeep was kind of trending in that direction too. The SUV didn't exist, which is a weird uh, thing to think about. No, there, there was were, no non-car option. There were Jeep uh you know, Wranglers yeah. and and Chevy Suburbans that were that were multi passenger vehicles made on truck chassis, 
but there wasn't that dem that that that's that pretty narrow what what was initially a narrow marketplace that became maybe the it's bigger than cars yeah, i it's think the now. most common car yeah. but yeah a four seat or six seat truck chassis based station wagon is mm-hmm. what they effectively are. i guess yeah the station wagon was the suv of this time station wagon and then in the 80s the introduction of the minivan but the minivan didn't exist either for a long time no, there was this huge missing middle if you didn't want a, a 12 person ford econoline van or whatever well, in the initial like '80s, uh, Hilux was just a little sport pickup, but it was uh, it was a you know they Toyota was making these sort of hotter motors. They had they were they were improving on their early sort of 18 and 20 R motors, and they were starting to introduce these like the 22 R and the 22 RE. These 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 what became and I, I mentioned them by. By this this designation only because they became legendary motors and motorsports engines that people kind of covet. There was a, you know, a, a, a one of these Hiluxes that had a a, a six cylinder Toyota motor that I mean the 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 truck is prized and and in particular for the, this special motor that's not in all of them, right? But I they these trucks came to my attention in Alaska as a teenager because they just had. I, they had a lot of presence as a, as just a little. They no longer felt cheap. They no longer felt small. They felt that's is this de- cool design. and this is design. Yeah, there's a lot to do with body, design. It's body style. It's body style and it's capability. Once they introduced four wheel drive into these, you recognized that this was a this was a lightweight, agile four wheeler, which no longer it no longer felt like four wheel drive was exclusively the province of these big crawler uh you know heavyweight trucks that were meant to be you know farm trucks tractors basically that, and that's how ford trucks were seen yeah and this was a it was a, basically a sport vehicle mm-hmm. um and then toyota kind of recognized it and, and uh, again they're selling cars worldwide but they see this american market kind of take off and uh, in a, in the mid '80s, they were approached by Winnebago, and Winnebago said, "Look, we want to put a little RV back on these little hut or mm-hmm. something, you know, a bed and a and a and a and a sink." And so Winnebago and a couple of other RV makers started putting these little fiberglass houses on the back of Toyota trucks. How would that work? Would you buy them separately or was it an no, options it was, package on the... It was, a, it was, you'd buy it from Winnebago, okay. right? But Winnebago would buy the chassis and then they would oh, take okay. them and make their own vehicles. So they're just buying Hiluxes and... But you saw this, this new potential, which was, this isn't a big camper. You're not out travels with Charlie somewhere with your dog, you know, going around America. You've got a little... You just have a pickup like a normal person, yeah, but... Fits in the driveway. Yeah. And and with their torque and with their uh, you know with their particular kind of um, transfer case, like they can climb a tree, but they're this compact. You know, it really appeals to a certain kind of person that wants to be a turtle. And those then led to the development of the what in America was sold as the Forerunner, um, oh. which was the really arguably the first SUV, and the Forerunner was a Toyota product. That was based around the next iteration. So this would have been the fourth generation of Hiluxes, but it came with an enclosed canopy that was open to the cab. 
So and, and did it look like an add-on thing, like the way the Winnebago's were? Or not was anymore. It p- part of the body design? It was part of the design, and it was a very clever design that gave it a kind of, although it was just a, just a sort of canopy, it, mm-hmm. it looked like a unified creature. And in the rest of the world, that was called the Hilux Surf. Um, but here in the surf and because they were also selling a ton of cars in Australia, like, um, the, it was called the surf because it sort of felt like the type of truck that you would have if you were a surfer, you know, it had that, that appeal. And it did here too. It was instantly recognizable as the coolest thing that ever happened. Um, because they, they'd grown in size. They were no longer by the fourth generation. The Hilux was. Uh, not a big truck, but a a medium sized truck. truck yeah. And and they were spacious. They felt they still felt very much like a practical car. There there weren't a ton of bells and whistles to them, but they had I don't know. It was the rise of the skateboard and the snowboard and the and the and the forerunner. And what was going on inside? Two rows of seats and then a and then. St- a storage bed back of there? You, or? Had, you had bucket seats in the front and then you could have a bench or bucket seats in the in, in the middle and then in the back would have been where your dog or your, I mean, it's a yeah. classic SUV yes. design. And uh, Nissan immediately sort of imitated them. I mean, it, and then, then the most successful version of it was the, in America at least, was the Ford um, Explorer, Explorer yeah. the first Explorer, which again, just took the world by storm. Now, why why it hadn't always been there, who knows? But uh, but it took this to make it happen. But the Toyota became far more than the Ford Explorer, a globally legendary vehicle, one that could surpass three hundred thousand miles without too much trouble, um, and. And it was with these SUV bodies on them? Is that usually what? No, no. They were mostly, mostly pickup, pickup trucks. Okay. Um, and they, they hand in hand with the Toyota Land Cruiser, which is a which was a bigger version right. of the, the Hilux uh, that, you know, kind of had a reputation of being somewhat handmade vehicles, but, but quite a bit more expensive, that were competing with the Range Rover, the British Range Rover, for the same sort of adventure market. But the British Range Rover was made in Britain. And so had a lot of the same quality control issues that the United States made cars did because of the, you know, the decline of the manufacturing core of England and America. I don't even know what to blame this on. Uh, we, we can't do unions after the Mother Jones entry. Well, yeah, I know. Galtieri took the Union Jack and Maggie with the, <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to go. I won't go that deep into it. But, you know, this was. This was the Rust Belt in both both the UK and the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, they became so legendary that, and legendary as a vehicle of uh, development in most of Africa. Where are we we've seen this Africa is Latin America as well, or Latin America, Asia. Um, the the truck becomes. I guess a, the roads are not as good there. They're not. So, so the I mean, no offense. But none taken. <laughs> I don't want you to be offended, John, I'm as, not. A, as someone who has traveled widely. But I mean, that's why that kind of a rugged vehicle is is useful, right? You don't know what kind of surface you're going to be on. It's going to be a lot of dirt, more dirt and gravel than a Western user. And as the trucks got slightly bigger, they became much more useful. I've seen pictures of a Toyota Hilux that had, you know, six people in the cab and 
22 people in, in sitting in some way attached to the bed or the roof <laughs> or the hood. So, you know, the truck could withstand it. It could go, like you say, off-road and, and it was resilient. And also the motors were, were bulletproof. You could change the oil uh, on a regular schedule and otherwise the thing would just keep running. So they became important components uh, of um, or important elements in the developing world. Mm-hmm. So much so that it's part of infrastructure, basically. Yeah. And just like the Mercedes and the Peugeots before them, that and the Fiats that had performed all these roles, taxi cabs and and uh, you know uh, diplomatic cars, cars and whatnot. These trucks became sort of um, uh, the symbols of the Bush. And uh, very famously, there was a there was a conflict in the mid '80s between Libya and Chad. Uh, Libya, with, under Gaddafi, mm-hmm. had a very big modern sort of Soviet financed and supplied military. Three, you know, big rows of tanks and airplanes, and uh, what you would think of as a as a Cold War era. Uh, despot overseen, you know, uh, ground war military. He gets good stuff. That's, that's why he's Gaddafi. And Gaddafi was making incursions into Chad and Chad had a much less stable government. Uh, they had a new leader in the name of, uh, Hussein. What is his name? Hadre. I think Hadre. Habre. Habre. Okay. I, I'm just taking your word for it. Yeah. I, I cannot name Ten Chadian presidents, right. so and, and up until up until researching the Toyota Hilux, I was not familiar with the the, the what I imagine is um, not the longest reign of Hussein Habre, but he was. Qaddafi uh, gave him um, not very many chances to unify the 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 nation of Chad. Qaddafi imagined that he had the support of sort of rebels in northern Chad and went to subsume this sort of desolate part of northern Chad to within the Libyan sphere. And, you know, the tide turned uh, Habre, uh, sort of regained support from his, uh, from from the, the various alliances mm-hmm. and went to repel Gaddafi, but the Chadian military did not have this uh, this infrastructure. They didn't have all this weaponry. Didn't have the same materiel as you, Gaddafi. Yeah, and you know, this was sort of French colonial Africa, so there was all the complications of of that colonial relationship with Chad. But what Chad had was 400 Toyota Hiluxes. Here's one thing about a guy named Chad. He's always, he's always got a couple pickups. That's right. Those chads, man. <laughs> and so because the Hilux um, was a versatile truck, and I, and you've, you've seen them, and we're about to get to that. You've seen them in photographs of almost any insurgency in the world. It is founded on the Hilux as the vehicle uh, that is yeah, – they get a machine gun mounted in the back or a rocket launcher sort of bolted to the floor – and they become very agile, sort of, uh, you know, quick strike in and out 
rebel vehicle. So if you've ever seen a truckload of militia guys on CNN. They, 99% of the time, it's a Toyota Hilux. Toyota must be so proud. They should start basing the advertising campaigns on that. Well, you know, I always used to say about Ford vans, like every band in the country is touring in a Ford van. I mean, there are some bands that are in Chevy vans, but hardly any. It's really a Ford-dominated thing. And I was talking to somebody that would that knew, mm-hmm. you know, somebody that worked in cars. I was like, why, do, why doesn't Ford use this? And they said, Ford sells 0.01% of its vans to bands. <laughs> it sells, you know, 80% of those vans to, like, airports and churches. They're not going to care about, you know, whether Rilo Kylie is in a Ford van. Plus, you're not the most admirable right. role models. Hey, bros! <laughs> get in the van! Let's let's list all the things that happened in the replacements <laughs> van and see which ones could go in an ad. If this van's rocking, man, go to Ford! Uh, well, so the, the, um, the war between Chad and Libya, uh, it ended up being a resounding victory for Chad. Yeah. They, they defeated the Libyan army largely because of this little, that's a victory for Toyota in my mind. Yeah. This Hilux, uh, you know, these little groups of pickups would come in, make a quick strike and then, then bug out. And they were, you know, it was a, a sort of classic Viet Cong in the desert style. They had some help from France. Eventually, France kind of got off their butts. But the war was called the Toyota War, <laughs> uh, and that's how it's that's how it's remembered. It was the Toyota War between Libya and Chad, and it actually put you know the kibosh on Gaddafi's ambitions to be. Uh, you know, the leader of North Africa. Can you imagine the branding discussions in conference rooms going on at Toyota, like? If you turn on CNN, they're calling it the Toyota War, you know, Toyota and there's some guys in the room who are like, hey, on the one hand, like, you know, Gaddafi's the bad guy here. This is yeah. great. It's good news. Th- you know, they're mentioning the product. People that are looking for a platform to to race the Paris-Dakar race maybe are going <laughs> right. to be like, hey, hey, that's cool. These held up in Chad. <laughs> I might. Uh, but if you just want to get your kids to practice in a forerunner, I don't know. Problems. It's human nature to hate problems. But why is that? After all, problems inspire us to mend things, bend things, make things better. That's why so many people work with IBM on everything. From city traffic to ocean plastic, new schools to new energy, flight delays to food safety. Smart loves problems. IBM. Let's put smart to work. Visit ibm.com smart to learn more. Well, so throughout the 90s then, these Hiluxes became, I mean, developed a legendary um, reputation. Not just for being great chatty and warfare trucks, but routine, as I said, routinely getting 300,000 or more miles. Um, they're still making them too, right? These aren't just yeah. the same old cars. So they, they, you know, the the next generation started in 1988. They they did a, a a redesign, and those are the ones I think that probably most people think of as the classic Hilux. Because by that point in time, they and again in the United States, still called the Toyota truck. There was a there was a a, a trim line, a trim model of it called the SR5. And for most of the people I knew that were skiers and adventure sports people, 
they talked about the SR5. That's the Marty McFly thing yeah, you mentioned, the right? SR5. But it's just an it's just an options package? It's yep. not actually a... Yep. Oh. They, they still just called it the truck. It's never been, you know, it's never been the Hilux. Now they're called the Tacoma. Um, <laughs> that probably sounds so exotic all over the world. Yeah. Kind of a Western mountainous, obviously Native American name. And yet, if you're from around here and you think of Tacoma as kind of the industrial backwater of the region. Yeah. It's one of the reasons I've never taken the Tacoma seriously. I'm like, oh, right. Sure. The, the, you know, the Toyota Everett. In general, I don't think I want to live anywhere that a truck is named for. Huh. I mean, what about the Sierra? No. I mean, maybe Durango is the closest. What about suburban? (laughs) That's for me. That's my adventure. Uh, in fact, the 1988-designed Hilux was uh, was popular enough and, and sturdy enough that even after they designed um, – after they redesigned the Toyota for the world market, they continued to make the 1988 Toyota in South Africa for various reasons, uh, you know, tax advantages and, and whatnot. Yeah. They continued to make it until 1997. Uh, making it sort of side by side with the new Toyotas, but it was sort of like the Volkswagen Beetle in in Mexico, um, and what I've always considered to be what should have been the Ford F two fifty, the nineteen seventy two Ford F two fifty. Why, why I would buy one if it was new today. Why would you ever stop making that that truck? You probably could have imported one if you'd really put your mind to it. Yeah. You could figure out how to get a Toyota from South Africa. Yeah, well, that's true. It's not like the steering wheel's on the wrong side or anything. No, I guess not. They've redesigned it multiple times. Um, the 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 strength and resiliency of the truck was put to the test by the television program Top Gear. You, have you ever seen Top Gear? Sure. The Jeremy Clarkson, uh, like libertarian, like British uh, Brexit libertarian it's a, vehicle. It's a British car show. It's a British car show, and they decided, you know, they do do all kinds of car adventures, and they decided to put uh, a Hilux to the test. And this is based on its reputation as just this unkillable truck, right? Yeah. So they had this they had this car this this version of it that had um, one hundred and ninety thousand miles on it already, and they said, let's try and kill this truck. And uh, they parked it on a beach and let the tide come in, and it spent. 10 hours at the under, bottom of the ocean, under the ocean, <laughs> the tide went out. They went out, tried to start it. It started it immediately starts. Um, they set it on fire. And although it was screwed up, they, you know, with, with, uh, the parts that they had, they didn't, what was it? They didn't use any parts. They just used the tools that were to there in the toolkit the- and they, fi- they got it running. See, this is what you need. Like I if know. you're, if you're going to light all your cars on fire, I know, uh, uh, one of the great things they did with this Toyota was they they lifted it up to the top of a twenty story building, put it there. Uh, the building was scheduled for demolition, <laughs> and they blew up the building. The entire thing collapsed. I hope the Top Gear guys knew that it was scheduled for demolition. <laughs> they they ran in after the building had uh, collapsed, found the truck just crushed, uh, climbed into it, turned the key, and it started. And so it became. This was a thing, I think, that Toyota Yeah, I mean, loved. there's no downside to right. this. Uh, and they just tried and tried and tried, and I think uh, eventually they, they decided they couldn't kill it, 
and the the truck actually became part of the backdrop of their studio set. Oh, this crushed cool. Toyota. <coughs> so in every episode, you can see. But then Top Gear became a real. Uh, they they really promoted the Toyota, and in the process of doing their show, their adventures, they had they took a custom made Hilux that was you know designed for this purpose. And drove it to the North Pole, the first vehicle to ever get to the North Pole. Wait, is that right? Yeah. Nobody had ever driven anything to the no, North Pole? No, how do you drive it? So the, oh, it's, the, it's the ocean. But, and but not a problem for our friend the Hilux. It was a massive problem. <laughs> it was extremely difficult to do. I mean, you, just, you, go, over, you go over ice. You we're, go over ice, but it's... in the last decade when that's possible, maybe, but... But it was ice that was broken. You know, every time the sea shifts, yes. it creates a 20-foot cliff of ice, so they had to really inch their way there. It was arduous, uh, and, but they made it. And then a group of Toyota Hiluxes not associated with Top Gear uh, in caravan made it, drove to the South Pole and back, uh, being then the first vehicles to ever reach the South Pole. I think you got to do it simultaneously. Not, oh, no. just to send out from both sides. <laughs> yes. Just so Earth can be surrounded <laughs> by the Toyota Hilux uh, uh, 180 degrees. All of us are between two hyluses right now. Now there are lots of, or not lots, but there are there are plenty of instances where a Toyota Hilux has surpassed a million miles. Is that uh, is there a record? Like, do we know what the do we know what the, the car uh, with the greatest yeah, mileage the vehicle is? with the greatest mileage odometer mileage ever? It has to be either a Toyota Hilux or a uh, or a Mercedes. Like 300. Let's see. Highest mileage. I mean, it's it's the kind of thing where, you know, if it's rolled over a few times. Uh, let's see. Oh, wow. I just need to, I need to eat crow here. Um, the, the car with the highest mileage, 3 million miles. On this car is a 1966 Volvo. Really? Of, and it's a Volvo 1800 too. It's not even a. It's not even a sedan. It's that little sporty Volvo that that has always made me go, "What is that?" I guess those were still dependable Volvo-like cars. Yeah, it looks like a Carmen Ghia kind of. But uh, but three million miles on it, and then the second one is a as a Mercedes 240D which has 2,800,000 miles. So as you can guess, uh, uh, Gregorios Sakhalindis, Sakhalindis, who is, who's got the, the Mercedes in second place, is probably driving like crazy to beat Irving Gordon in his 66 Volvo. But you can't. Irving's going to just drive, drive a little faster than you. Oh, the third uh, the car with the third largest mileage is also a Volvo. And then this is going to blow your mind. The fourth is a Plymouth Fury, a 1963 Plymouth Fury. Wow. So the that's like the guy that That's guy, like the guy that just lives for a long time, but then they ask him why, and he's like, I smoke six cigars a day. And you're like, well, what is up with this guy? The Hilux is not even in the top 10. So, And there are several American cars in there too. And I think that may have something to do with the fact that you don't get the opportunity to, to put three million miles on a car, you have to be driving long distances every day, right? Yeah. You have to be doing some kind of commute from Atlanta to Denver that you do over and over and over. Also, this 1966 Volvo is that's ten, a decade before the Hilux was even an, 
right. a model. So you, you've got a head start. But, uh, but it's, you know, like, it's, uh, th- these trucks are, are uh, astonishing in their just, uh, well, what became kind of a global ubiquity. But lately, there is, there's a problem within the Toyota Hilux world. Uh-oh. Which is that the Hilux has become synonymous with ISIS. Um, when ISIS uh, takes over a city, they roll into town in a parade of white Hiluxes with machine guns and rocket launchers bolted to the back, full of ISIS fighters with you know their logo stenciled on the sides and on the hood. I mean, I guess that's Toyota's fault for allowing them to license themselves as the official Islamic militants of of Toyota. Well, it it attracted global attention because although a lot of the ISIS Hiluxes are used models that could have been sort of discovered anywhere. Yeah. There are hundreds and hundreds of brand new Ooh. Toyota Hiluxes. So where are they coming from? Where are they coming from? And the sort of US State Department was maybe the first to say, "Hey, what's the deal?" Toyota. Who keeps selling all these? Why are you? Because it's a, a, a not insignificant number of trucks. And it's one thing if your trucks are being used by Boko Haram in the, you know, the tens and twenties, but we're talking about, uh, like hundreds and thousands of these Toyotas such that, uh, like accountants have certainly noticed. Yeah. And uh, such that, uh, that people that are working in the U S military, in uh, that that are running checkpoints in Iraq during the Iraq War, uh, they 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 got much more heightened I- intention if they saw a white Hilux approaching a checkpoint because it was just a, it was just a rebel vehicle. Do not accept checks from this guy. Is, and th- are these are the ones that are, are they're still being made in South Africa? No, or? no, no. These are made in. Uh, they were. Uh, made exclusively in Japan up until about 1991, and then they started to farm out production. 91, I think, is when they built the first production facility in America, mm-hmm. and then they started to move. You know, the, these so, are built all over the world. They're though. built all over the world. Okay, but um, there's no clear supply chain that would be uh, supplying these trucks to ISIS. But of course. Talk about thousands of vehicles. So Toyota is not not profiting from it, but they are they they you know they're very public about um, restricting access to you know they're not selling hilariously the last Toyota dealership in Syria closed in 2012, so they eliminated that in 2011. Six thousand Toyota Hiluxes were sold in Iraq at Iraqi Hilux dealerships uh-huh. in 2013, two years later, 18,000 Hiluxes were sold mm. uh, an increase of 300%. Toyota, 200%. Toyota may have noticed the, uh, the influx of Hiluxes onto their Iraqi lots. Yeah. And they still sell a lot of Toyotas in, uh, in Iraq. Um, just recently in 2014, 800, Toyota Hiluxes went missing in Sydney, Australia. Like, went missing. That's a lot to just lose, to misplace. And I'm not sure how they would go about 
losing 800 Hiluxes. Like that's that, how that's m- multiple carriers of them. That's, isn't that like a, a boat full of, that's a ship full of trucks. Let's consult. Uh, let's consult the internet. How many Hiluxes fit on a ship? There's a ship called the Andromeda Leader, and it is capable of carrying 3,000 cars oh, wow. on one ship. Um, but still, you're talking about almost half a shipload of vehicles just turning up missing. It's pretty astonishing. I mean, it, it, think of all the people you'd have to pay off. And this is just the 800, uh, the 800 Hiluxes that went mo- missing in Sydney, Australia in 2014. I mean, there are a lot of. Hiluxes out there. So there's a vast global network funneling this very specific truck into the desert. That's right. It, there is an underground, uh, like illegal Hilux market. So they are effectively, um, almost certainly, now one of these uh, restricted sort of commodities like drugs. Like guns. They've been described as the AK-47 of vehicles uh, because they just refuse to die and they've become sort of ubiquitous in the the developing war machine. I love the idea that one thing I have in common with Global Jihad is that in addition to Ramadan, we might also be celebrating Toyotathon. And that concludes the Toyota Hilux, entry 1323. JG0119, certificate number 16197, in the Omnibus. Now, John and I, the creators and and caretakers of the Omnibus, uh, we we spend most of our time uh, establishing and researching this reference work, but uh, in our small amount of spare time, we keep an eye on the happenings on the internet. John is at John Roderick on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Ken Jennings on Twitter uh, the project was collectively at Omnibus Project in our era, and we hope in yours as well as social media survives. Uh, on Facebook, listeners gathered as the Futurelings. Uh, also on Reddit, likewise, um, we received digital communications at the Omnibus Project at gmail.com. If you have uh, any kind of uh, time traveling access, to electronic mail of our era. You can drop us a line there. Please do. You can send us uh, physical items. AK-47s. Do not send us AK-47s. Bindles of send drugs. Send us the AK-47 of whatever your particular sector is. Uh, for example, do you remember John, who really wants us to do a show on the Mothman? Oh, yes. Or Mothman? He re- sent us another long letter, which includes this uh, figurine. Of, of Mothman. Oh, is that what that is? It looks like a mouse with bat wings. Yeah, apparently the wings the wings do not look like moth wings. You'd think they would. He has moth antennae and kind of big insectoid eyes, but then claws and kind of uh, Fantasia devil wings that n- look nothing like a moth. Not at all. No, no I, they... I would call this guy, you know, I don't know, Batman. Yeah, a Batman is what I thought it was. I, I guess was that like, was used. I was like, well, that's amazing that Batman, the latest ish, uh, iteration of Batman is just li- like a bat. This is Mothman. He uses the Mothmobile when okay. the moth signal shows. He's got long He fingers. throws his Mothering at I people. I spend a lot of time interacting with moths, actually. I chase them all around, and that does not look like any moth. It, I, it doesn't have the vibe of a moth. No. I knew Moth F. Kennedy, sir, and you are no <laughs> Moth F. Kennedy. 
Uh, yeah, he has he has a long letter about why we need to, to put Mothman in the omnibus. And in fact, maybe the, he blames Mothman for the biggest bridge collapse in American history, hmm. which I was unaware of. But hmm. uh, I guess you can blame Mothman for anything. Hmm. I blame Mothman for... Uh, for uh, 9-11 and the death of Rock. Yeah, me too. God damn it. We, or I mean, rather, I should say, gosh darn it. <laughs> Consarnet? <laughs> You're getting close to the age where you can say consarnet. <laughs> uh, if you would like to contribute financially to Anonymous, we welcome those kind of pledges because they keep the show healthy and viable for us. Um, you can inquire about the perks that would be available to you as a patron mm-hmm. of the show at patreon.com slash omnibus project. Futurelings, we have no idea how long our civilization would survive or will survive or did survive. That's what we should say. We have no idea how long our civilization did survive or survived, as we would have said in our local lexicon. We have no idea how long our civilization survived. The real reason why time travel hasn't been invented is it just wrecks havoc on grammatical tenses. But we hoped and prayed in our time that this catastrophe we feared didn't come. Would never come. Would never come. But if the worst came soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may have been our final word. I already changed that part. Very nice. But if Providence allowed, <laughs> we hoped to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus. Why do you travel? To recover from heartbreak? To trace your DNA? Escape the internet? On our podcast, A Way to Go, we've been exploring all the reasons we travel. I'm Geraldine Gerba. I'm Pavia Rosati. And together, we're the founders of travel website Fab. And we've already heard so many great stories. Such as... An actress in rural Kenya explaining the ins and outs of safe sex. A graffiti artist tagging the islands of Southeast Asia. A producer arranging high fashion photo shoots in the desert. Listen to A Way to Go on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 